Welcome to Conservation Conversations, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, global trends, and the future of biodiversity conservation. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe, where we leverage science and technology to protect endangered species and ecosystems around the world. So welcome to this month's Conservation Conversations. I'm really excited to be here with Neil Cox and Bruce Young, who are both wonderful people and friends of mine. Uh, and today we're here to talk all about reptiles. Uh, but before we talk about the reptiles, I want to tell you a little bit about Bruce and Neil and um, get a little fundamental information out there for us so we're, we're ready to understand why what these two gentlemen have done is so important. Uh, Bruce Young is NatureServe's, actually, he's our chief zoologist and senior conservation scientist. He's got about 25 years experience in biodiversity research and conservation. Uh, in his role at NatureServe, he led the first ever conservation status assessments of hundreds of insect pollinators and the publication of several reports on the status and assessment of pollinators in North America. Uh, pollinators is something we've talked about on this show before and are obviously really important. Um, and as a major contributor to the global amphibian, mammal, and now reptile assessments, Dr. Young has helped revolutionize global conservation efforts for these groups of animals. And uh, Bruce and I share some background when we were in grad school uh, spending time in Costa Rica. Uh, and Neil Cox is the manager of Biodiversity Assessment Unit, a joint initiative of the IUCN, another organization we've talked about many times on this show. Uh, the IUCN Species Survival Commission and Conservation International Center for Applied Biodiversity Science based here in Washington. Uh, Neil has worked on a wide range of global and regional biodiversity related issues, including conservation assessments, illegal trade in endangered species and biodiversity indicators. Dr. Cox has been associated with the IUCN Red List since 1994 in a variety of capacities, uh, including species assessment and uh, data collection and management. And uh, we're really Happy to have Neil and Bruce here to talk about the, their most recent work. But before we talk about the reptiles specifically, I said conservation status assessment a whole bunch of times recently. And uh, I wonder if you all could explain what, what does that mean? What is a conservation status assessment? So really what we need to know um, to make sure that we're uh, distributing funds and efforts to prevent uh, global extinction events, which I think nobody wants to see happen, is that we need to know where we prioritise a lot of that uh, those resources. And as part of that, we need to do conservation assessments, determine through expert knowledge which species are most likely to go extinct first and how we intervene to prevent that. So uh, as part of the review, which reviews that we do as assessment processes, we, we try to work out which ones are most threatened with extinction and address that. So um, in the red list, which is a thing that many people have heard of, the conservation of status assessments essentially feed into how things are described in the red list. Is that accurate? Yeah. So the so IUCN uh, maintains the red list of threatened species, and there's about um, 130,000 species on there. Not all of them are threatened right now, but uh, the conservation assessments then that we undertake as part of the, the reptile assessment process that we'll be talking about and various others are all published on the red list and they're used by governments and NGOs and civil society and other people to guide where these resources should go to, to prevent not just the extinction of giant pandas and elephants, but all of the all of the other creatures that make up that 
great realm of biodiversity that we all know and love. So Bruce, NatureServe does conservation status assessments in the United States and also at regional and state levels, but we also do global assessments both for the species that we work on specifically because they're, I guess, primarily North American species, Um, but we also contribute to the global red list, not just in the work you're doing right now with the global reptile assessment, but just in general. So talk about what NatureServe conservation status assessments are because they're basically used for the same thing Neil was just talking about, but at a different scale. That's right. Um, both the NatureServe methodology and the Red List methodology aim at the same thing, to assess ex- extinction risk in species. Um, it's due to a kind of a historical happenstance that we have these two different methods that um, the NatureServe method uh, got too far along, too developed back in the 1990s. Um, early 2000s, um, by the time the red list assessment um, process really uh, settled onto what we have today. Um, and so unfortunately, we have the two systems, um, but they do the, they aim to do the same thing. Um, in the US and Canada, it's the NatureServe system is, has been woven into the fabric of public policy and government regulations and so forth. It's just, you know, the the carts left the barn and uh, it's just too late to to switch over to the IUCN system, but um, we we work uh, together quite well. We have systems set up to convert NatureServe assessments into red list assessments and, and vice versa. And, and NatureServe is a major contributor to uh, red listing, uh, as Neil said, uh, for reptiles and, and many other groups. Right. And there's, um, there's a very close correlation between if the red list says something is critically endangered and if nature serves says it's critically endangered, as you said, we can, we can translate those two things into each other quite, quite nicely. Uh, so there's two systems, but uh, fundamentally we're not, we're not at odds with one another. Uh, and we're all working towards the same goal of, as Neil said, trying to keep things from going extinct. That That's right. Um, I mean, as a scientist, we like to look at where there's major differences between the two systems. It's, it's, it turns out it's for wide ranging species that are declining rapidly. The, the systems d- diverge the most, but by and large, there's a very high correlation between uh, the yeah. two systems. So with your backgrounds in these two areas and these two different methods of conservation status assessments, you've worked together many times and been involved in this. And most recently, You've uh, gathered together hundreds of scientists from across the globe to check on the conservation status of reptiles. Now, so why reptiles? Why now? And, you know, why should I care? I mean, I know why I should care, but, you know. (laughs) So, as I mentioned before, we're trying to figure out which species are in most need of conservation efforts. with uh, preventive extinctions. And nobody until the study that we've we've come out, Bruce and I, and you know, we're just the, the, the tip of like all these hundreds of scientists that um, Sean has talked about. No, nobody really got a comprehensive view of which were the most threatened species in the world, where in the world these species occurred, and sort of what conservation measures and were needed, what threats were in place. This, this information wasn't on the red list. It wasn't uh, easily accessible previously to our, our very long-term study. Um, we've done, we've collaborated, you know, IUCN, uh, Conservation International, and Nature before on similar studies for amphibians and mammals, and um, 
And this time we've 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 finally managed to, to get around to looking at nearly 11,000 reptile species in the world um, to try to work out where we can really save a lot of these species. Why should we care? I mean, reptiles are a, a, a fundamental part of of most um, of most uh, tropical ecosystems and a lot of temperate ones as well. They're not just um, you know that they, they we, we kind of overlook them at times, but they're they're very important predators of some species. Uh, they prevent, uh, for instance, uh, things getting out of balance with uh, pest species there. But also, they are prey to a lot of species as well. So, um, and uh, uh, there are reptiles that feed on reptiles, of course. So we can't overlook that. But um, if we start removing bits of biodiversity, if we remove the reptiles, even if you're not particularly keen on them, it does have knock-on effects through the, the whole ecosystem. It might eventually and likely impact some of the species that you, you're probably more interested in. Bruce, what, what do you think? Yeah, well, first, I mean, I just want to say that I've worked with Neil um, since we started out on the global amphibian assessment over two decades ago, and it's just been a fantastic collaboration through all these years. I count Neil as one of my best friends. Um, and uh, I mean, what? And you asked, like, why now? So what happened was we worked on the global amphibian assessment in the early 2000s, came out in 2004, I think. It, it was you know, made news around the world. It was the first time we could say, you know, this entire uh, branch of the tree of life uh, had a third of its species at risk of extinction. And it, and I just thought, okay, we're, okay, we did the amphibians check. Let's go on to the reptiles. And, 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 but it's been a long road. It's, uh, it was just the, the, Funding for reptile assessments was just not as easy to get as it was for the amphibians. At the same time, the IUCN Red List kind of standards had changed that it was uh, required more documentation for each assessment. Uh, there some political issues came up. Uh, it just took a long time uh, to get it out, and we're just so thankful. I mean, I mean, talk about this collaboration. Fifteen years, we stuck to it, uh, and 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 have finished now. So I think that's a real tribute uh, to Neil, especially uh, for seeing this through. And it is, that is a testament both to your friendship and to the persistence and the importance of, of the topic. And we're going to get into a little bit of your findings here in a minute, but I wanted to first recognize that there were over 900 scientists worked on this and you had to collaborate over 15 years with all of these people in particular, really heavily in the past couple of years under uh, really unusual circumstances where you weren't able to get together to review the data and to have the conversations. And did that, did that equalize things? Did it make it harder? Like how did the, how did that all work out? So I think, um, thanks Sean. I think as, as Bruce mentioned, this has been a really, it's been a, a long process, uh, 50, at least 15 years for the, the reptile assessment to take place. In some ways we've been quite fortunate that, most of the engagement with the scientists that you, you talked about, the very the hundreds of them, took place at uh, workshops or some through correspondence before the last couple of years and COVID has really you know disturbed things. So I think the last workshop that I went to was in 2019 in South Africa in October, and Bruce was there as well. I was right, and um, and that that was the last workshop we had. We what has really um, been difficult for us, I think, is, you know, pulling together the findings um, within the last couple of years. 
I mean, it's been uh, everything that has to be done through correspondence. Of course, we have uh, many authors on the on the paper that give us the the, the outcomes of the, the reptile assessment and things. So it's great that we can have um, so many more Zoom calls and Teams calls. I think it's great anyway. <laughs> we have those now, but uh, that's that's really helped with it. Um, we've been lucky in some ways that the, a lot of the work was done pre-COVID. Yeah. yeah, and in fact, I mean, the timing, you know, you can make an argument that it was pretty good because as Neil said, we got the bulk of the assessments, the, all the workshops done before the pandemic hit. Then the pandemic hit and we couldn't travel anymore. And that's right when we had to work up on our results. So we, we didn't have those distractions of travel. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, in some ways you could argue that we were more productive with the uh, actual analysis of the results as a result of the pandemic because we we're all stuck in our homes uh, with nothing yeah. else to do than to analyze reptile data. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a common thing across the world. People just stuck in their homes analyzing reptile data. Um, so, in fact, that's what I want to talk about. And in the paper, there's beautiful illustrations and diagrams of the findings. But I wanted, like, tell me what what are the key findings from this? Like, what are the things? What's the takeaway? You know, we've we've essentially gone through the the why and the methods. Now, let's talk about the results. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe I'll talk about one of the results, and then we'll, we'll go to um, to Bruce to talk a bit more about um, some of the others. Uh, share a bit of bit of time here. Um, I think. The most important um, result, and you know, Bruce can will probably agree with me on this, is that we found that a lot of the reptiles or the most threatened reptiles are in areas where there's conservation efforts taking place already for other um, vertebrate groups, for the birds, the mammals, and the amphibians. So we so we know that there's a lot of overlap with where the most threatened reptile species are in the world, with those for those other species groups. So that's, this is a good news story, really, because we know that if we concentrate efforts to conserve these, these special places with all of these threatened species, not just going to be conserving maybe uh, some amphibians and a bird, but we're probably conserving the, the, the snake or the lizards that are threatened there as well. So it's, um, I think it's a really good overlap on that and, and really useful for, for managers, uh, for protected areas and other um, sort of policymakers to be able to to know this kind of stuff so bruce would you agree oh yeah absolutely i mean the, the big i mean if you had to boil the whole study down to one number it's 21 percent uh 21 of reptiles are threatened with extinction how does that compare to other vertebrates well it's uh, birds are probably half as threatened uh mammals are a little bit more proportionately and amphibians of course are much almost twice as uh threatened with extinction uh, but I mean, as Neil said, I mean, for me, the the big eye opener was the similarities across the the different vertebrate groups. That uh, deforestation is a big problem for birds. Well, it's a big problem for reptiles too. I mean, going into this study, there was this talk of reptile exceptionalism that reptiles are unusually diverse in arid areas, so maybe they're subject to different uh, threats there and conservation has overlooked them in these areas. And what we found was that, yes, there are a lot of reptiles in arid areas, but it turns out there aren't many threats there because there isn't a whole lot of economic activity going on in, in, in many um, like deserts and things. Uh, but 
uh, where birds and amphibians uh, are abundant at tropical rainforests, that's actually where reptiles are the most diverse as well. And we know that there's all kinds of threats to those forests. They affect reptiles just as much as anything else. That's really um, fascinating. And it is sort of a good news story because as we try and protect areas and we think about 30 by 30 and prioritizing areas to protect, it's always good when we can protect more species with our investment. And when you do that, the ecosystem stays more intact because you have more of the taxa so that they can do all the interacting that an ecosystem requires. Um, so you mentioned lots of species in arid areas uh, for the reptiles. What other things would, should people know about reptiles? I think, you know, people have, of course, heard of iguanas and snakes and things like that, but don't think about them that much necessarily. So what should, what should people know about reptiles? Like Neil mentioned their predator-prey relationships, but, you know, you guys have spent 15 years thinking about reptiles. You must have some, some takeaways from that. Go on, Bruce, I'll let you start with that one. Well, I mean, for me, you know, I'm not a herpetologist by training. I'm just a general zoologist. Like, like so many other people as a kid, I was fascinated by animals and I'm just one of the few lucky ones that gets to keep studying them into adulthood and actually get paid for it. Um, and, and reptiles are no different from other groups. They have just fascinating adaptations and things I never, never knew about. Like, I mean, sea snakes, for example, I mean, here's a snake that lives out its entire life cycle in the ocean. So unlike turtles, which have to go to land to lay their eggs, snakes figured out how to give birth live out in the open ocean. Uh, they, and snakes, snakes have scales, right? And you have to shed your, and snakes have to shed their skin, right? Well, how do you shed your skin in the ocean when you don't have any uh, bark or a rock to rub up against? I mean, they figure they they tie themselves in a knot and 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 use their own body to to peel off that skin. I mean, it just just blows your mind. I, just you know, story after story of how these uh, animals have adapted to their environments is is really what keeps me going and uh, uh, kept me excited about this project all through it. That's so cool. And I, I would say I'm just. Um... You know, like Bruce, I think I think I'm more of a sort of a more of a generalist. I try not to focus on any taxonomic group, which has been beneficial for when we've worked through some of the assessments previously on the amphibians and the mammals, and and you know I've helped with some marine tax from freshwater and various other groups. But um, you know, I have learned a lot more about reptiles, and it's 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 more the thing that drives me most is trying to present, prevent species extinctions, to be honest. That's the real thing that um, once I get a kick out of, but I, I think I'm contributing, I, I hope, to, to the world in that way. And that's, um, you know, Bruce mentioned that we're fortunate to have um, jobs where we can, we can go out and continue doing these, these great things. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I appreciate that kind of stuff. Hopefully, and, you know, it's fingers crossed on this, that a lot of the, the, the information that we've, produced not just in the uh, upcoming paper but through the the reptile assessment itself can really be used to, to sort of accomplish some of the things i'm hoping to see with the prevention of extinction of these really cool and uh, curious species at times so yeah so i want to i want to come back to the cool and curious species i think we maybe have established bruce's favorite reptile um <laughs> but before we get to neil's favorite reptile um 
Bruce mentioned 21% of reptiles are threatened with extinction, which is kind of terrifying. It's one out of every five species. Um, and then also the idea that there's these sort of uh, surrogate species, you know, if we protect one area, we're protecting multiple taxa, multiple species. What are the other like big findings or the things that stick out for you when you think about the, the global reptile assessment that you want people to remember? So there is the overall message that, you know, thank God there's this high level of surrogacy, as we call it, um, of overlap where threatened species are. Uh, but there are, I mean, that's not the whole story. There's still hundreds of species of threatened reptiles that live where no other threatened vertebrate occurs. Uh, so you can't, if you just take care of the birds or something, you'll, you will not cover uh, these other, you know, these, you know, few hundred species. So that's important to not let those uh, fall through the cracks. Uh, the other thing is um, in terms of the geography of, of threat uh, is important. Um, one of the cool things we did was looked at how much evolutionary history could potentially be lost if the threatened species all became extinct. And, base, and there's another number is uh, 15 billion years of evolutionary history is, is represented in these species. So this is 15 billion years of evolution that with new genes and things that don't occur anywhere else. Uh, so, but then also the geography is, uh, you know, there's a lot of overlap, um, but where we're going to, where there's a lot of this potential loss of what we call phylogenetic diversity is evolutionary uh, diversity um, is in uh, especially Southeast Asia, across Asia, um, where there's a tremendous uh, threat uh, to reptiles and, and other species as well. Uh, so that's, I mean, one area that, that really, really sticks out uh, is, is that area in terms of kind of global priorities. Uh, it, that would be one of them. And you can see that clearly on, on some of the maps that we developed as part of the study. It seems that... Um technology in this assessment versus previous taxa must have changed things, right? Because you now have access to more genetic information to be able to do that analysis, say, or the geographic information systems tools that you had for this assessment and databases. Um, I'm imagining you were able to do things in the global reptile assessment that you weren't able to do with amphibians and other, other groups. Definitely. Certainly, I remember back, um, back, Bruce mentioned that the amphibian assessment was published in 2004. And we started in, I think, uh, late 2000, maybe early 2001 with that. So we're only talking, you know, 20 odd years ago. But the difference in the quality of um, GIS, GIS and satellite mapping and all these sort of options now is just monumental i mean a lot of the amphibian maps that we had before were, were were good for the quality that they were at the time the reptile maps are much better again because we've got much more much more um detailed ability to be able to like look at and see where these little islands are that bruce mentioned you know there might be an island where only some sort of threatened lizards are found on we can find those much more easily now and then the sort of the information, the systems that we use for storing the information and presenting it. I mean, again, the 
we saw in a in a database behind the scenes from the red list but then all of that information is presented in a in a sort of a really nice format now and on the red list website that wasn't again you know i think everybody appreciates how much the internet has changed since 2000 um and who knows what it'll be like in another 20 years i mean we can only hope that it's a real contribution again to you know, helping with these species conservation efforts yeah yeah, I mean, so, I mean, a couple of different levels there. So, you know, back in the early days of the global reptile assessment, we were going to these workshops with our laptops and filling out the data into an access database on each of our laptops that then had to be uh, combined with from the workshop and then combined into the global red list access database now. Now, so, so we have this online database um, that IUCN has developed and uh, at the workshop locations now, there's enough bandwidth that we can mm-hmm. do all all the workshops live right on um, right in the um, database itself. So there's that saves an enormous amount of time yeah. uh, there. I mean, then, and then on the analysis side, yeah, I mean, when you're adding up ten thousand species, each with their own range map across. 50 by 50 kilometer pixels of the Earth's surface. That's a lot of computer time to, to look at that. And with supercomputers now, you know, just, you know, we're down to a couple of days to do an analysis like that. Whereas, yeah, 20 years ago, we couldn't even imagine thinking yeah. about such a thing. It's so fantastic how technology is advancing our ability to, to know, you know, what things are, where they are. And how endangered are they? Which are the three questions that NatureServe is always talking about. What is it, where is it, and how is it doing? So that we can help people make the best conservation decisions. Um, so both of you have made a reference to essentially um, getting to take your childhood hobby or your childhood interest into your career. And that's one of the things that I think is so fun about working in this field is the number of people who like found something that they loved, whether it was bugs or plants or mushrooms or whatever, and now get to do that as part of their career. And um, I always like to you know, point out for people who are listening that these are viable career options for, for young people today. You know, Being a zoologist or a herpetologist or whatever, mycologist, um, those, are, those are real jobs um, and they're important jobs, especially as we're in this sixth extinction and we're worried about you know, the stability of our ecosystems. And so just, whether it's for your children or for yourselves, if you think back, like how did you, or how do you like promote people going into these kinds of fields, right? We need more people in these fields and we more uh, diverse group of people coming into the kinds of fields that are gonna promote conservation in the future. So what's what's your pitch for going into this field? So I think um, what, one of the things is that, you know, it's not just about animals right or plants or anything else it's about people as well right so conserving biodiversity is about preserving you know, livelihoods for everybody on the earth and preserving you know our environment as a whole so it might not be that you go into something that's sort of zoology or botany related like um like um bruce and i have done but you can make a difference in whatever field that you're thinking about just Bear in mind a lot of the things that we've we've talked about in perhaps this podcast or you've read. And I know 
a lot of um, it can be. I think people have found it in the past difficult to get into the biodiversity conservation field. I think that's broadening now, as, as you mentioned, Sean. There's more opportunities opening up as we realise the importance of this. Um, keep at it. Keep trying to you know go follow your dream on that. And when you see opportunities, don't be too scared to take them. It might seem like a difficult thing at first. I, I, I mean, I, I dove straight into a, an internship when I was maybe 20 years old, and that changed the, the pathway of my life. I've now, you know, I've been here in Washington, D.C. for 20 years working on species assessments, so, and something I never thought I'd be, ever get the opportunity to do previously. So, um, so I'm, I'm really pleased with how things are working out, I think. So, and you can do the same, same too. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, for me and for many of my colleagues, I'm sure Neil's in the same situation that it's, it, it's been a series of mentors um, that started fairly early. Um, for me, it was a high school science teacher that invited me on a bird watching trip uh, with a guy named Dave Sibley, who was a classmate and who's now um, written the most famous book on bird identification in North America. Uh, but, and, and then, you know, in college, grad school, just these key people that kind of made me realize that I could have this kind of dream and, and maybe I even had it within me to, to realize it. And, and, but for, for many people that they don't even know that that dream is, is out there. They don't even know that that's in the realm of possibility. I think back to a former uh, human resources director we had at NatureServe who had a couple of kids and, and, and one especially who was, you know, a little, having a little trouble in school, was a little maybe hyperactive, but he just loved being outdoors, finding things like finding organisms. And, and like in his world, you know, that, that, Almost maybe a, other people thought it was a distraction or something, but he needed the mentor to say, "Hey, you know what? You you can spend your lifetime chasing down these bugs and things that mm -hmm. you clearly really are interested in." Uh, and so I think it's, I mean, for you know a big sector of the population, it's it's getting at people early so that they realize that that's even something you can do. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so swing it back to the paper. Um, it's going to be published in a journal that I think many people have heard of. Do you want to thump your chests and tell us what it is? Bruce, go on. You go first on that one. <laughs> well, it's coming out in the journal Nature. Um, which so is the premier science journal in the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's funny, uh, you know, only researchers know this, but every journal um, has what's called an impact factor. Uh, and it's it's related to how many times the articles in the journal are cited by other scientists uh, in the future after after they're published. And and uh, I, I'm pretty happy when I get a paper into a journal where the impact factor is three and and, and you know a real home run is when it's a five. And after we got this paper accepted in Nature, someone told me, oh, yeah, the impact factor for Nature is 50. <laughs> <laughs> it's excellent. This is, this is, I mean, for someone like me, this is a, this is a once in a career uh, opportunity. Or, um, so I'm just 
over the moon. <laughs> so it's awesome for both of you personally that way and professionally, but it's also awesome for the conservation of reptiles because it means people are going to see this and uh, people will be able to go to the NatureServe website and see some of the results and some of the graphs because the graphics and the maps from this paper are just stunning and, and amazing to look at. So we'll make sure that people can have access to that. Uh, so before we wrap up, I want to see if you have any last things you want to communicate to the to the listeners today. Well, I mean, one thing I was reflecting back on, Sean, was um, the very difficult question of which is my favorite reptile. Oh, right, of course. <laughs> and I, I can't come bring up with back. one. I can't come up with one. That's the thing. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm from the UK originally, and we have a, the grand total of six or eight reptile species there. So that's, um, and I never used to see any when I was a kid. Um, What's your favorite Irish snake? <laughs> oh, you're not catching me out on that one. You can talk to the one once that St. Patrick drove out of Ireland, of course. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do like that we've learned a lot more about um, well, well, snakes in particular, to be honest, because people, a lot of people, are f- afraid of snakes, and you know, it, it's it's like spiders and other sort of creepy crawly things. Snakes are always lumped in there. The thing about snakes is, though, is worth remembering for people is that there's very few species that are actually harmful to people or, you know, could could send you to hospital. Um, you know, that's not to say that a lot of people in places like India are not um, aren't victims of snake bite, particularly from Russell's vipers and things like that, or Sorskjaer vipers, I should say. But um, you know, not every snake is is a threat to you and like everybody always says, they want to get away from you as soon as they can. So, you know, look after those snakes out there. All right. The sea, the sea snakes, especially, right, Bruce? <laughs> right. You'd be so lucky to see one. I mean, yeah. Uh, where I live, they actually wash up on the shores at a certain season of the year. So it's pretty cool. Um, I have two parting thoughts, if I may. Um, the first is to acknowledge the 50 other co-authors besides Neil and I that are on this paper. And then the 900 additional people that contributed to the assessments that we could not, uh, for various reasons, uh, invite uh, to uh, co-author the paper. We had come up with very strict criteria, um, but there's many, many people that contributed even to hundreds of assessments. So uh, that's, uh, we really have to re- acknowledge. And the other thing is, you know, this is a big day for reptile conservation. I Once this, the papers with the paper out one in five reptiles are threatened with extinction this gives so many people working on reptile conservation the baseline data and kind of public acknowledgement of the crisis that they need to justify their grant proposals and the work that they do on the ground it's it's part of a global effort uh, and and it's something that uh, we need and now there's just more motivation uh, to be able to do that and to actually go back and, and look at some of the things we did and find out where we made mistakes, where we didn't we fill in the cracks in the information that we had to, uh, you know, as we go through and into the future, know better and better how we can conserve reptiles. That's great. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, thank you guys for the work that you've done and for the really the the sum of your careers to this point and i know you both have many more years in front of you uh so you have another crack at nature there bruce uh, 
Thank you for being on Conservation Conversations and for the work that you've done. And um, I look forward to uh, seeing you both in person again real soon. Thanks. Thanks, Sean.